Globally, an estimated one third of all women have been subjected to physical or sexual violence. However, out of fear and socioeconomic disenfranchisement, less than 40% of women who experience such violence seek help. In the United States alone, one in four women have suffered rape or attempted rape in their lifetime. For men, this figure is closer to one in 26. The disparity is staggering. Statistics on gendered violence reveal men are more likely to commit violence crimes, whereas women are far more likely to be the victims of violence. Despite greater visibility and awareness of crimes against women, notions derived from what is understood to be toxic masculinity and its proponents are a growing influence over men, and especially young males. In 2022, the US Secret Service released a report detailing the rising threat of domestic terrorism from males identifying as involuntary celibates, better known as incels, a network of mostly young males who uphold the misguided belief that sex with women is an entitlement to which they've been denied. This report considered misogyny not only a threat to women, but to national security itself. So how do we stop the tide of violence and hate speech stemming from the circulation of such misogynistic rhetoric? And how can we move forward while best supporting its victims? This is Rachel Havard with The Oxford Comment. On today's episode, we explore two recognisable components in contemporary conversations on gender and gendered violence, that of toxic masculinity and of the Me Too movement, the awareness campaign that came to global prominence in October 2017 after the public downfall of Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein. Our first guest, Robert Lawson, is the author of Language and Mediated Masculinities, Cultures, Contexts, Constraints. He shared with us how language intersects with masculinities in media spaces, how constructed masculinity is performed, and how language may be our best weapon in combating the rising misogyny hurting women and men. Thanks for joining us. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your area of research? Yep, so I'm an associate professor in sociolinguistics at Birmingham City University and so Broadly speaking, I'm sort of interested in the relationship between language on the one hand and society on the other. So I'm really fascinated by how people use language, what language tells us about people's histories, their heritage, their links to their local community, um, as well as what it tells us about who people are in their day-to-day lives. And more recently, you know, I've been interested in what language tells us about men in contemporary settings and how people use language and what that language tells us about uh, who people are. Thank you. What first inspired you to write your book, Language and Mediated Masculinities? Could you please introduce some of the key ideas in language and masculinity studies? Yeah, so this book is a fairly prolonged um, labour of love that finds its beginnings all the way back in 2012. The initial plan was to convert uh, my PhD about uh, the language of of young men in a high school in Glasgow and convert that into uh, a book. And over the course of the reviewing process, the editor came back and said, you know, this is a really interesting idea, but... It's got a really specific focus on this particular group of speakers, this particular group of speakers in Glasgow. And I don't know how relevant that will be for a readership outside of Scotland, outside of the UK. Maybe we can try and find ways of of kind of 
expanding some of the focus uh, of of that proposed book into something that's kind of going to be a bit more broadly relevant. So I went back to the drawing board and started thinking about how I could make you know this book more relevant to a kind of wider readership and. One of the chapters that was definitely going to be in the original book was uh, kind of focus on this idea of, of tough man masculinity or hard man masculinity in the British press. And from there, I kind of thought, well, you know, maybe we could start looking at some of these issues, but across different kinds of media context. So potentially, you know, TV shows, um, social media sites, forums uh, and, and so on. And from there, it was sort of a gradual process of, oh, that's a really interesting kind of context that no one's written about. Let's let's kind of focus on looking at language and masculinities and oh, a TV show, for example. I think once I got a sense of what the book as a whole was going to look like, it, it all started kind of writing itself uh, in, in a lot of ways. At that point in 2019, I had become a dad. And so one of the chapters focuses on fatherhood, and I think that was driven a lot by my own kind of personal experiences of, of fatherhood and of being a new parent. And so I kind of used that as a kind of guide for one of the chapters. But I think more broadly, I was just interested in what language tells us about men in contemporary society and thinking about how masculinity becomes so contested, how masculinity becomes, you know, this thing that a lot of people spend time writing about and thinking about and arguing and debating about. And I think over the last sort of year or two, we've seen these really critical discussions and debates about masculinity come to come to the fore and ideas round about toxic masculinity and destructive masculinity. But also, you know, kind of the, the social media influencing sphere as well. People like Andrew Tate and you know, selling particular images of what it is to be a man in, uh, in the 21st century. And so kind of all of that taken together was, was kind of my inspiration for, for the book, kind of trying to get to the bottom of understanding what language tells us about men, but also what that language tells us about kind of contemporary gender relations between men and, uh, and women. Um, what that language might tell us about the state of kind of contemporary gender politics as as well, uh, and actually then how we can start to try and do some good based on our understanding of how language is weaponized in manosphere spaces, for example. Could you just in a couple of sentences explain what the manosphere yeah. actually is? Oh, crikey, just a couple of sentences. I can try my best. Um, okay, so the manosphere is a kind of loose constellation of male-focused websites, Twitter spaces, um, blogs, podcasts, um, social media sites, ostensibly uh, dedicated to men's issues. So that might be, you know, dating, relationships, working out, diet advice, um, starting up your own business, you know, being an entrepreneur, marriage, having kids, you know, divorce proceedings, uh, and, and so on. So basically, you know, anything that's sort of loosely connected to um, being a man, but what a lot of research has found, including my own, is that the manosphere is also a space where kind of anti-feminist and anti-woman sentiment runs rampant as well, and so it's it's very kind of anti anti-women in orientation as well. It's where we find a lot of sexist and misogynistic and, uh, and abusive content directed towards um, women, and so you know, kind of markets itself as as a space for men to talk about men's issues, but like I say, there's a really strong 
um, undercurrent of of misogyny and sexism that we see across a variety of manosphere spaces. Thanks. You talk about both positive and toxic masculinity in your book. Beginning with the latter, in one of the chapters of the book, you examine masculinity in the r slash the Donald community on the social networking site Reddit. What can you tell us about the alt-right and online forums like r slash the Donald? Yeah, so this was this was a really interesting chapter to to write because I, I think I had been so Reddit is a is a you know social media networking um, site and kind of news um, aggregator website as well. It's, it's one of the world's most popular um, website. It's you know worth multi billions of pounds and it's a really popular space for people are in the kind of political alt-right, um, but also it was one space where Donald Trump's presidential bid and subsequent presidency gathered uh, a massive amount of, of support and momentum. And there was a, a subreddit that was developed and then closed down um, in later years called R the Donald that was kind of dedicated to content promoting and supporting Donald Trump and his, uh, and his presidency. And I'd started kind of thinking about how masculinity was constituted in that space. And so I wanted to look at ideas around about kind of alpha masculinity and how particular forms of, of masculinity were venerated or exalted and how um, this kind of alpha masculinity was was placed as the aspirational form of, of masculinity and it's kind of Donald Trump goes out to you know save the world and and solve all the you know all the problems that the US is is facing. And when I started looking at some of the threads, what I also realised was that a lot of the discussion about masculinity was inflected through this uh, lens of of race as well. And so there were really interesting kind of patterns to do with how masculinity and race and ethnicity and nationhood kind of were interwoven um, across different threads on, on the Donald. And particularly this idea of kind of white masculinity is something under threat that the subreddit kind of was trying to protect uh, this idea that white masculinity was was something to kind of strive towards. It was a kind of exalted best form of masculinity and the other forms of kind of racialized masculinities weren't quite as, as good. And so some of the threads talked uh, a lot about kind of the technological advancements and inventions of uh, white men and kind of co-opting that as a as an element of, of supporting kind of white masculinity while other forms of masculinity were kind of denigrated. So black masculinity and, and Muslim masculinity in particular were the two other elements that I that I looked at. So it's just this really interesting kind of confluence of gender and ethnicity and nationhood and community. And one that was really eye-opening as, as well because the Donald had been regularly criticised by different people about his kind of racist content that had been promoted on, on the site. And one kind of defence that was bandied round about the subreddit was that, you know, people on the Donald weren't racist, that they were inclusive and that they were just interested in, in ensuring that America was was represented um, on the world stage and that it, it, it could do good in, in, that, in that dimension. Um, but what I found in, in my research wasn't explicitly um, racist, but kind of implicitly racist in a lot of ways, but that racism was inflected 
as I say, through this kind of lens of ethnicity. So, so yeah, so that was that was a kind of finding that I, I wasn't expecting when I was doing the analysis. I kind of thought that there would just be a bit of a kind of chest thumping sense of of masculinity in a lot of ways, but but that wasn't the case. Like I say, there was this kind of inflection of of ethnicity alongside gender and masculinity that I, I thought was was really interesting as well. You also discuss the online construction of fatherhood in online fathers forums. You pay close attention to the linguistic practice deployed by fathers in online spaces. Could you tell us about what you learned from analysing the discourse of fatherhood and masculinity in these forums? Yeah, so this was a, this was a forum um, that I found called dad.info. Uh, one of the first things that I, I kind of realised when I was planning this particular chapter is that there's not that many spaces online for dads to talk about being a dad, to talk about parenthood, to talk about the difficulties of, of being a father. There are some parenting forums that are really popular and really active. So Mumsnet um, is probably the most famous example of this. It's a really active um, community, but even the dad sub um, forum on Mumsnet doesn't actually have that much activity. So the first thing um, was that it was a real struggle to find an online space where dads had built a community, were supporting one another, were engaging in kind of regular correspondence and communication um, with one another. And dad.info was, was probably one of the more popular and more active forums purely dedicated to, to dads uh, online that I was able to, to find. So once I found that, I started kind of reviewing some of the threads. What became really quickly apparent is that a lot of the posters don't actually talk about masculinity. They don't really talk about fatherhood. They don't really talk about being a dad. Um, I looked at a number of different forums, kind of ranging from uh, advice about legal uh, issues through to issues to do with you know relationships, um, uh, subforums dedicated to kind of family issues, and then a, a, a subforum dedicated to, to child maintenance or, or child support um, queries. They tended to treat the forum as a kind of problem-solving um, resource. So a lot of the posters would go on maybe once or twice. They would ask a question about you know. Child custody after a after a divorce, for example, other posters would come in and help out and answer that question, give them you know links and resources to help support them, and then they would say you know thanks very much for that, and then that would be the the kind of limit of their participation on the forum, and that was a really common kind of thread uh, across the forum that there wasn't this sense of of kind of community building or ongoing engagement. Across the forum, instead, what we saw was kind of this one-stop shop for supporting dads when they were at really difficult points in their in their lives, and that was that was really interesting. I think I was kind of expecting to see much more kind of regular uh, conversation engagement across the forums where people built up these these personal relationships. Actually, the people who posted more re most regularly were the moderators of each of the individual forums, rather than specific non-moderator members of the of the forums and so i would you know stumble across a thread and go oh this is this is super interesting they're talking about fatherhood they're talking about you know you know difficulties in being a dad and there as i say weren't really that many instances of that one father actually did get back to me and said you know this sounds like a really interesting project you're involved in i'm happy to give you consent to look at my data 
Um, and that data was about the arrival of, of his and his wife's um, baby wasn't straightforward. And it was him narrating, you know, the difficulties of, of the birth, about the, the sort of the impact that that challenging birth had on, on him in particular um, as a brand new dad uh, on his wife as well. And the kind of expectations that he had set up in his uh, mind about the level of support that he was expected to to give to his wife, but also the, the kind of expectations of, of normative masculinity that what he was expected, you know, to, to kind of follow. And so in his narrative, he talks about, you know, oh, I basically broke down because, you know, things were really difficult. And then he follows up by saying, you know, I know I'm kind of weak, I guess. And so that tension between showing kind of emotional vulnerability in on the one hand and then on the other hand being like, oh, wait a minute, I don't know if I can do that at this time. And that, you know, by doing that, does that make me, does that make me weak? And so that was a real privilege, first and foremost, to have those conversations with this new dad about the difficulties he, he had when his and his wife's baby um, arrived. So yeah, that was something that, again, I, I kind of didn't expect. I, I really did think that I would get loads and loads of examples to look at how men in the 21st century thought about fatherhood and thought about what it is to be a dad but as i say the the actual site itself was more kind of geared towards this, this practical support rather than this kind of form of community building often in media the word masculinity is preceded by the word toxic or triggers negative connotations however there is positive masculinity something we should all encourage can you briefly tell us about the language used in relation to positive masculinity so the focus on positive masculinity was was predicated on analysing the American TV show uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is about a kind of fictional uh, police precinct in New York. And it kind of follows the, the lives and trials and tribulations of different um, characters, but mainly the main character, um, Detective um, Perotta, who kind of embodies this... Um, kind of gung-ho form of, of kind of police masculinity. He's, he's tough, but he's funny, but he kind of wants to be the the man in charge and, the you know, kind of a bit of an alpha male character as well. But the TV show was really praised for the way in which it subverted a lot of these really kind of dominant tropes of, of stoic, tough, um, emotionless police uh, masculinity. And a number of the characters in that show were really interesting and from uh, both a linguistic perspective, but also from a, a kind of perspective of, of masculinity studies. And looking at the interactions and the linguistic practices of these characters, what I found was there was a lot of examples of expressing male vulnerability and, and male closeness and kind of affiliation with one another. And that was particularly the case between um, Peralta and Boyle, who are kind of two of the main male leads um, in the in the show. And I looked at the way that this interactional closeness was deployed in, in conversation. So one excerpt I look at, um, they copy one another's words, they have kind of choreographed dance moves, they pick up on each other's lines and kind of complete those um, lines. So there's a kind of real interactional alignment um, with one another. Uh, and other examples, so 
Terry Jeffords, uh, uh, one of the other uh, sergeants in the in the show. He expresses, you know, a real sense of vulnerability when he talks about his his family, and that's another thing that that Boyle does as well. So there's a lot of discussion about the importance of family, about um, children and partners, and so this sense of of kind of them being fathers is an important part of of who they are. Was also, I argue, a kind of element of of expressing this kind of positive masculinity or kind of healthier conceptualizations of masculinity. So that chapter was actually ended up being one of my favorite ones because I think there's not that much work in language and masculinity studies that looks at positive masculinity. A lot of it looks at the more kind of problematic and toxic elements of, of masculinity and, you know, some of the communities that we've already um, talked about, whether that's the, you know, the manosphere or pickup artists. But I think if we, you know, as language and masculinity scholars, if we want to really understand the totality of what it is to be a, a man in you know, contemporary society, we can't just look at the the bad and problematic and toxic and negative elements. Then we also need to look at those spaces where masculinity might be configured in a more positive kind of way. But what was really interesting in some of the data that I looked at was the tension between kind of traditional forms of, of masculinity and, and more progressive forms. So, you know, Boyle and Peralta, for example, would have these real moments of, of interactional closeness and intimacy and then they would recognise that as kind of breaking the rules of of masculine friendship and, you know, kind of acknowledge that, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't be this close. Maybe we need to kind of distance ourselves from, from one another. So a lot of the humour being kind of constructed in the show through that tension of kind of progressive masculinity on the one hand and, and more traditional demands on masculine behaviour on the other. Why is it important in improving our understanding of the role media plays in promoting alternative constructions of masculinity? So one of the arguments that I make um, across the book is that the media is a really powerful and important force in presenting kind of normalised scripts of gender behaviour and kind of setting out expectations of, of how we behave. And sometimes we mirror them you know consciously or unconsciously other times we might go you know that's definitely not the kind of person that i want to be and so we we distance ourselves from those representations but i think that the, because the media is such an integral part of our daily lives and you know we all engage with the media in different ways over the course of you know a normal uh, day because of that, I think that the media has a responsibility to present alternative visions, uh, alternative compositions of, of masculinity. And given how dangerous I think some of the kind of toxic masculine representations that we see both online and in the media more generally, I think that we need to you know, really encourage um, media producers and writers and you know creators to uh, embrace aspects of po positive and healthy masculinity and promote those for a readership and for a viewership and for you know different types of uh, audiences because I think if you look at uh, you know a lot of what's happening you know over the course of the last sort of six twelve months or so with you know so male influencers like you know people like Tate. Um, 
a lot of the question is, well, you know, what's the alternative? What what other kinds of role models are there out there for young men to to look up to and to and to model and to you know kind of aspire to? Um, and I think that the media has a, a kind of a role to play there in filling that and uh, that gap and offering you know kind of more positive, healthy role models. Um, and examples of masculinity for for young men in particular to to follow for the media to you know kind of promote alternative constructions of of masculinity and ones that align with a kind of healthier, more empathetic, more um, positive kind of orientation. Do you think that the almost overwhelming presence of media in our day to day life makes people's thoughts more susceptible to be moulded than they were in a pre media dominated pre social media world? I don't know if it makes us more susceptible to be mouldy, but I think the level of influence is different to, you know, the kind of pre-media dominated world. The internet is at our fingertips through mobile phones, through laptops, through tablets and, and all the rest of it. And people regularly engage with this content on a on a day-to-day basis. And it's a really intense form of engagement that's kind of driven by your own interest so your Twitter account or your um, YouTube uh, timeline or your Instagram feed or whatever sort of form of, of social media that you consume is shaped by our interests in a kind of cyclical way. So once you find something that you're interested in, the algorithm feeds you more of that content. But that content is also multi-directional. So you're not just a kind of passive consumer of that content. You like things, you retweet things, you comment on them, you share them, you write blog posts about them, you may do podcasts about them, you may write an article about them. And so that engagement is um, multi-directional, it's, it's multimodal, uh, and it's and it's prolonged over, you know, over a period of time. So I think taking all of those elements to, together that our engagement with today's media is really different to maybe what we had before social media became uh, a real thing. And I think because it's more accessible, because we engage with it on a more regular basis and a more prolonged um, basis, that it can, you know, that it does influence us. And whether that make you know, whether we're more susceptible now because you know that engagement is kind of lowering our defenses against that influence you know i i i don't know but there's certainly a, a point to be made i think about the ubiquity of of social media in our daily lives and i think that people are now starting to be really conscious about the dangers that, that social media represents you know not just in terms of kind of mental health um problems and sort of comparing yourself against social media personalities that you see uh, online, but also, you know, the the real level of influence that those um, people have on on folks' everyday lives. And I think again, going back to you know the kind of Andrew Tate stuff that we've seen recently, one of the big concerns about Tate is the level of reach that that he has, and you know how many young boys in particular that engage with his content that then end up um, parroting or repeating, you know, his talking points in classrooms or in the you know school hallway or out in the playground or or whatever it is. Um, and the question becomes, you know, what can what can we do to try and address that? Is it that we need 
interventions at an educational level um, in classrooms or assemblies? Is it that we need teachers to be trained better to intervene in these conversations? Is it that we need to really sit down and, and have in-depth conversations with, with young men about why those kinds of male supremacist ideologies are dangerous. But all of that stuff that we've seen over the course of you know last eight months or so highlights, I think, the, the dangers that, that social media influencers um, represent. You know, and I think the, the question is then, uh, what do we do to help guard against those those influences and what will it take to help young men develop, you know, a kind of toolkit to be able to challenge some of some of these discourses when they're exposed to them. About Andrew Tate, does his use of aspirational language influence toxic masculinity? For example, Tate sometimes talks about ambition and aspirations of his life and work, which young men in particular then latch on to. Does this make his misogyny easier to justify? So I think Tate's message of self-improvement, of bettering yourself, of striving to achieve something bigger than yourself is, is one that resonates um, across a lot of his um, fans. I think it's something that, that people you know look up to him as a success story um, with the money and the cars and the you know, globetrotting lifestyle. Um, and I think he markets and sells a very seductive form of, of masculinity and kind of male identity, one, you know, kind of based on on power and conspicuous consumption, on prestige, on, you know, kind of this jet set lifestyle. And I think that that kind of aspirational discourse potentially makes some of his audience quicker to overlook the more problematic elements of his messaging, um, certainly as they relate to, you know, sexism uh, and misogyny. I, I think the because of that, then it, it becomes, you know, more difficult to separate the good elements of that message versus the more problematic elements of that message. But what I would say is folk can get that kind of aspirational content from other sources. Um, from other public figures who don't engage in some of the more difficult or problematic or sexist or misogynistic kind of content that Tate espouses. You know, you look at someone like, you know, Marcus Rashford, for example, who has been a, a, a real, really positive force for, you know, things like free school meals uh, and raising awareness of, you know, childhood poverty, uh, but also being, you know, just a genuinely nice guy um as as well so i think that if folk are looking for those kinds of aspirational messages and role models to look up to that those role models are out there and those role models don't necessarily engage in in some of the kind of sexist and misogynistic tropes that we see other social media influencers kind of promote as as well so i think that yeah it's always dangerous to kind of put social media influencers on a pedestal um, and think that they're the answer to everything uh, or that they have the answer to everything. I, I would encourage people to look much more close to home um, for mentors, for role models, for, for other men in their lives to kind of look up to and aspire to, whether that's, you know, community leaders or coaches or teachers or, you know, other family members. Finally... Has the Me Too movement positively affected masculinity over the last few years? 
Has there been a backlash? Has the toxic gotten more toxic? Or has it been largely successful? That's a really interesting question. I think things like the Me Too movement certainly raised people's awareness of certain forms of masculinity as a social ill. But I think it I think it raised the profile of some men are, you know, a problem. But some forms of masculinity are a problem. And I think that it probably wasn't, at least in in my own experience, until the murders uh, of Sabina Nessa and Sarah Everard um, in the UK, where I started to see more conversation about, right, okay, now men really need to start looking what men are all about and the role that men are playing in violence against women and girls and trying to reframe the conversation. So I think up until that point, it had been very much on a, a kind of victim focus. You know, what can women do to keep themselves safe? What can women do to avoid being attacked in the evening? What can women do to make sure that they kept safe? I think particularly following the murder of Sarah Everard, that on places like Twitter, that conversation really shifted and it wasn't then just about, you know, focus solely on what can women do. It was what responsibility, what role did men play in all of this? Because men are overwhelmingly the perpetrators of sexual violence against uh, women and girls, and you know, as well as, you know, non-sexual um, violence as, as well. So I think that was probably where I, I saw the conversation start to shift towards men's culpability and role uh, and responsibility in these kinds of um, issues and starting to think how men can be better allies to women um, and how men can really reflect on their own behaviours and practices. I think one of the points I make in the book is that it's really difficult to reflect on our own behaviour, especially when that might force us to look at the, the more insalubrious kind of elements of, of who we are. No one ever really likes thinking that they're the bad person. No one ever likes thinking that they're ba the bad guy because our whole sense of self is wrapped up in, you know, a kind of, oh, folk like us and folk like me and I'm a good person. And when you, when you make people kind of reflect on themselves and their behaviour, that's a really difficult step to make and I think that that was you know one of the reasons and the kind of the backlash towards the Me Too movement you know there was the trending um, hashtag not all men um, which kind of really derailed the focus and the conversation on violence against women and again it just really pulls focus away from the important issues of well actually how do you go about reducing rates of violence against women and girls what can we do in terms of education um, for men and boys in particular, how do you address issues of sexual privilege, of expectations round about relationships and dating and so on? So I think those are all, again, really big questions. And there are a number of, of charities and organisations engaged in really good anti-violence work with, with men um, and boys. I think it, you know, it's really important that that work continues. The government had just, uh, in the UK, had a big... Um, national advertising campaign about, you know, kind of that refocus on men's role in sexual and uh, violence against women and girls. So, the, you know, those are the kinds of conversations and, and interventions that I think we need to see more of. But I think the fact that we're having these conversations is a, is a positive step, right? It, you know, I think 
the flip side would be that we don't talk about any of this kind of stuff and we just pretend that everything's okay and everything's fine and everything's normal and actually these issues are not issues at all. I said much the same about Andrew Tate. You know, the fact that his influence is so corrosive and that people are talking about, you know, a kind of reaction against some of the viewpoints that he's promoting, that's a good thing, right? Because if no one was saying, well, hold on, actually, no, we don't agree with that. If everyone was saying, oh, yeah, 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 that's, that's, yeah, yeah, what, that's, I totally agree with that. That's, that's a problem, right? Because then it just becomes normalized. So the fact that we're not there yet, I think that's a good thing. So silver lining and all of this is as much as there can be with these kinds of topics. Well, thank you for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Our second guest, Ikrisha Gufta Chima, is the editor of the other hashtag MeToo's. She spoke with my colleague, Megan Schaefer, about the origins of the MeToo movement, how it has been received around the world, and how it has changed and will continue to change to meet the needs of the victims for which it advocates. Thanks for joining us, Ikra. If you could please introduce yourself and your scholarship, and in turn, share with us when you were first made aware of Me Too as a social movement and your understanding of its initial conception and goals. Thank you so much for inviting me to the podcast, Megan. I am Ikra Shigufta Chima. I am an assistant professor of humanities at Graceland University in Iowa, where I'll also coordinate a new major called Social Change starting this fall. I teach and write about digital transnational feminisms and post-colonial literature and films. My edited book, The Other Me Too's, recently came out with Oxford University Press and an other co-authored book about the work of Palestinian filmmaker Anne-Marie Jasser will be out later this year with Edinburgh University Press. My interest in the Me Too movement and my edited book, The Other Me Too's, also resulted from these interests in transnational cultural interactions around gender and sexuality. I became aware of the Me Too alongside everyone else in October 2017 when the hashtag was first tweeted and my understanding of the Me Too as a social movement and its goals and conceptions developed, you know, with every tweet, social media post, online interaction and their reportage that I encountered while I was reflecting on the movement and its different directions. While the initial conception and the goal in the moment that the Me Too movement had in 2017 was largely to create awareness around sexual violence, it gradually and organically has gone far beyond that to really transform both the publics and policies around gender and sexual interactions. Generally, we observe that laws and policies for gender equality and redressal of sexual violence are created, but those policies do not always smoothly transition into the cultural and public practices. But Me Too inversed that order. It transformed the cultural understanding of sexual and gendered violence and created transformative publics, which then led to reflections and questions about state policies and cultural practices in professional and personal spaces. I say this in the preface to the other Me Too, and I would say it here too, that I truly feel incredibly lucky to have witnessed and experienced a social movement of this magnitude in my life. Could you share with us several of what you would consider pivotal moments for the movement? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the answer to this question is somewhat complex and it significantly varies depending upon how and where we locate the Me Too movement and its various international iterations and adaptations. However, in an attempt to answer this question, I would think retrospectively and go back to 2006 when Tarana Burke first founded the Me Too movement on MySpace. But even Burke's 2006 movement was a result of our interaction 
with a 13-year-old sexual abuse survivor in 1997. Burke shares that at that time, she didn't have a response or a way to help that child in that moment. She couldn't even say me too. These initial movements and initiatives like the young girl talking to Burke in 1997 and then Burke initiating the Me Too on MySpace in 2006 have been critical in laying the foundation for a movement like the Me Too that finally happened in 2017 on a larger scale. In terms of significant cultural moments that have been pivotal in and since the 2017 Me Too movement, I believe women's marches have internationally been one of the most powerful and empowering events that feminists have successfully sustained and continue to organize every year despite the major challenges that come with organizing these events. But they become critical sites of conversation each year, where both the questions and answers about the need of Me Too or the women's marches become visible and available to the public. Besides that, despite the many complexities of the attention that the Hollywood Me Too cases receive, I think they become an effective tool in raising public feminist consciousness in different ways, since there is usually massive attention to every minute detail of these cases. And many around the globe enthusiastically follow the reportage of these cases. And more critically, they also attempt to develop an informed opinion about these cases. So for example, at the start of the Me Too movement, cases like Harvey Weinstein and Louis C.K., but especially like more recently cases like Aziz Ansari and then Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Irrespective of any personal opinions that people may have, these cases serve as pivotal moments of reflection and help the public grasp the complexities and nuances of the conversations and experiences of gendered and sexual violence. Um, and uh, most importantly, I believe the act of saying Me Too is the most pivotal moment in a crisis, a moment that highlights a shared experience. It creates solidarity, invites reflection on shared ethos, and sets a shared goal. So from Burke's inability to say Me Too in 1997 to the Me Too becoming the largest social movement of our times in 2017, I believe it is millions of people's willingness to say Me Too and hear Me Too that became the primary agent of change during these two decades between 1997 to 2017. As well as serving as a Me Too primer, your book also covers the impact of the movement and others like it around the world, whereas most Western scholarly and popular treatment of the movement assumes it is a primarily Western phenomenon. Why is this the case? And could you share with us successes for which Me Too may have been responsible of which we might not be aware? Uh, great question. Yes. I think in many ways, the successes of the Me Too movement have been similar in different contexts and locations. So it has attended to the questions and contentions that we have seen emerge in the works of scholars like, let's say, Chandra Mohanty or Gayatri Spivak or Bell Hooks or Gloria Anzaldoa and like many others like them. However, uh, long histories of cultural erasure and cultural imperialism also serve as a context for the differential attention that we observe in the Me Too movement. Alongside that, realities like class and race and their corollaries like fame and visibility have been major factors in helping highlight some cases from some locations more than others. And while it is impossible to account for the many successes of the Me Too movement, um, internationally, I believe the biggest success has been the expansive feminist publics that the Me Too has helped create. We have witnessed sociopolitical shifts 
in conversations around feminist politics, increased international recognition of the need for feminist justice, um, greater awareness about intersectional feminism, wider availability of feminist vocabularies, and decreased taboos around conversations about gendered and sexual violence, um, which have all been significant around the globe, and they have like tremendously changed how we view and approach sexual and gendered violence. So for example, you know, like within a month of the initiation of the Me Too movement from October to November 2017, the hashtag Me Too had been tweeted more than 2.3 million times and Women's March had been tweeted more than 11.5 million times in multiple languages worldwide. And that is one of the successes of the Me Too movement, that it created the kind of shared vocabularies that are simultaneously global and local, or that can be employed as such. So, for example, replication of the Me Too in China's rice bunny hashtags, or its various adaptations in the Middle East or in South Asian countries like Sri Lanka, and even its various translations in different languages, have made the feminist vocabularies more familiar and normalized being able to name what you experience and then being able to grasp a collective expression of that experience are immensely powerful acts that have been possible due to the Me Too movement. However, um, Me Too itself highlights that white feminists, a lot of times as holders of like privileged seats at what we view as the proverbial feminist roundtable and as a signal of like solidarity, they need to recognize the differential attention that feminists of color receive a lot of times are the cases that are not located in the West, especially in America, receive and acknowledge this differential treatment and the need to recognize the contributions from other people who are working on this. And I believe the only way to think and act responsibly now is to think transnationally and this transnational thinking not in a unilinear flow from West to the rest, but in a more rhizomatic fashion where we consider the inequities that exist globally, but also account for the inequities that exist locally everywhere and weigh their impact on the global reflections on these social issues, irrespective of where we are located when we are thinking about these problems. Has the Me Too movement changed since its inception? For example, has it gained additional meaning or nuance? Has awareness or support for the movement peaked and its momentum stagnated? In any instance, what can account for such change? That's a very important question, which encapsulates not only the questions of the success of the Me Too movement, but also its momentum over half a decade now, um, like any other organic movement, I think Me Too has changed significantly since its inception, but mostly in good ways. The initial shock or denial of the many realizations that came in the wake of the Me Too has gradually waned now to make more room for a nuanced and critical understanding of the conversations that were taking place before the Me Too happened or that have taken place after and during the Me Too movement. But also there has arisen a need to at least engage more thoughtfully with the problematics that the Me Too movement highlighted. When we read articles about men being afraid to date or flirt with women, it is essentially a differently worded or misworded announcement that the conversations about sexual and gendered violence are more nuanced and people, particularly men, might not have the vocabularies or the tools to fully grasp these nuances or even the willingness to do that, but they definitely observe the changes around them that have taken place since the Me Too. 
And that observation itself, even if it comes from a place of protest or as a pronouncement of helplessness, is a catalyst for sustaining the momentum of the Me Too movement and even further expanding it. We can't think about the Me Too as a movement that has peaked or that sought a peak because the strength of the movement lies not in a peak moment, but in a slow and steady recurrence of events and conversations that help us think more critically and continually about the problems that the Me Too highlights in the cultures that we inhabit. And I'm happy to say that these Me Too conversations recur around us all the time, both in good and bad ways. We see that people experience violence, but also that people say Me Too and they speak about it and that sustains the momentum of the Me Too conversations. Annual women's marches have become almost synonymous with the Me Too movements, which um, I think is a great thing. In fewer words, I would say, yes, the movement has changed, but it has assumed more nuance. It will not stagnate because the experiences that it speaks about occur. And with every new experience, another person says Me Too in different ways, whether it is reporting to a human resources department or filing a legal case, or even just complaining to a friend, or maybe doing all of these together. So as long as people have to say Me Too, and as long as people are there to hear about it, the Me Too is alive and it will not stagnate. Has the Me Too movement had any noticeable positive effect on how men act in public and private settings? With controversial internet sites such as particular subreddits and 4chan and figures like Andrew Tate continuing to be popular among a certain segment of the population, can it be said that there has been backlash to Me Too? Absolutely. Um, there has definitely been a lot of backlash and even the nature of that backlash has changed over time, like how um, people responded to it when it started and how it has changed over time because I think like initially a lot of times when a movement starts or something goes viral, let's say many people perceive of it as a temporary thing that will just go away with time and Me Too has not done that and I think that can. Um, that is a wonderful thing for many of us but that is also not like you know what many other people were hoping. And I think we have all noticed changes in men's behavior in both public and private settings since the Me Too. There are some aggressive and reactionary responses, but mostly these changes, in my opinion, have been positive. People approach their interactions with some level of thoughtfulness and caution, or they're at least pushed to be more reflective about how they interact with other people when gender and sexual dynamics are involved. And this change has been on every level, people in their workspaces, people at home, people in their friendships, in their professional roles. Um, I mean, in 2016, we had a president talking about assaulting women. And then in 2019, we had a president promising to be more careful about personal space. Both were in response to women coming forward to say Me Too, but both these men's responses are wildly different. Each person is different, but also I think we owe a lot of these changes to the Me Too movement because it had forced people into spaces where they have to be more careful about how they conduct themselves. As for the Andrew Tate phenomenon, I think that is a lot more complex and we'll have to take into account Islamophobia and the racism um, along with sexism to understand how things like that occur. Like there is this wave of even more conservative uh, women employing Muslim traditions and Muslim women as fodder to feed into regressive and misogynist narratives about women's rights, which is absurd. 
That is what we have observed with conversations around trans and LGBTQ rights as well. So in some ways, it is a reactionary alliance of ultra-conservative misogynists across national and cultural boundaries, but we can only understand it if we historicize these trends in the context of global histories of colonialism, racism, sexism, and particularly Islamophobia in the case of Andrew Tate. Do you feel that awareness-led movements, especially those with a pronounced online component, are a universally effective form of protest that can result in meaningful change, or do such movements resonate better with and for particular audiences? Absolutely. Uh, we have observed online conversations making significant meaningful changes in ongoing politics and responses in recent years. So I think it is interesting to think of the divide between the online world and offline world, but I don't think it is useful to view them as these like complete binary opposites in some ways. These words are connected and inhabited by the same people, and in most ways, online worlds enable large groups of people to become an active part of the on-ground politics, like we saw in the MeToo movement. And we have observed since then a lot of times, like not everybody is afforded the privilege and the luxury of participating in like offline politics or learn about it. But then these online spaces enable that kind of feminist consciousness raising. It teaches people these vocabularies. It gives people the experiences and tools to understand their own experiences and then participate in these conversations. Um, they can do it with their identities visible or they can keep their identities hidden in some ways. And all of that then makes room for people and accommodates the different challenges that they may have if they were to interact solely in offline spaces with each other. Uh, it has been a really effective form of protest on local levels in many communities and countries, but also internationally. So for example, we have seen many expedient responses from the law enforcement agencies in many cases of sexual assault in Pakistan in the last few years. But recently also, the Zan Zindagi Azadi movement in Iran has very impressively kind of like demonstrates the power of how online and offline forms of protest seep into each other and inform each other. The digital divide is still a real challenge, but I think the online protests and organizations impact everyone's life in powerful ways. It could be negative sometimes, depending upon the political orientations of the people, but that can also be countered in a similar fashion. So um, as an example, let me share a small event that kind of shows how these dynamics play out. Uh, two years ago, a person was accused of blasphemy in Pakistan. It was nothing documented, nothing officially reported, just some random person sharing a news on Twitter and like sharing some screenshots and then people rallying to go attack the house of the blasphemer, the accused. Um, and they were all using one hashtag to connect with each other. It is a scary thing to see a large group planning to gather in front of a stranger's house to harm them. I saw this because it was under a trending hashtag on Twitter, but then someone started another hashtag about the South Korean band BTS with the intent to remove the blasphemy hashtag from the trending hashtag clicks on Twitter. So it was, uh, it became visible to far fewer people and their plan was disrupted. It was a strange, but also very heartening experience to observe this whole episode play out on Twitter. Like it saved a person's life and possibly their entire family from getting hurt or feeling threatened. 
And it also became a place where people were just sharing their love for music, the love for a South Korean band in Pakistan. All that to say that though online spaces like Twitter and Facebook have changed in some very unpleasant ways, but social movements with a pronounced online component are a universally effective form of protest that do result in meaningful change for people in online and offline spaces. I think it is critical for any social movement to be located in both online and offline spaces uh, to be successful at this moment in our history. Thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your insight into Me Too and the efficacy of contemporary social movements. Thank you so much for having me. We want to thank our guests, Robert Lawson and Ikrasha Gufta Chima, for speaking with us about contemporary conversations on gender and gendered violence. Please check out our show notes on the OUP blog for a recommended reading list exploring just a few of the ideas discussed today. New episodes of the Oxford Comment will premiere on the last Tuesday of each month. Be sure to follow Oxford Academic on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud and YouTube to stay up to date on upcoming podcast episodes. While you're at it, please do subscribe to the Oxford Comment wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including Apple, Google and Spotify. Lastly, we want to thank the crew of the Oxford Comment for their assistance on today's episode. Episode 85 was produced by Stephen Philippi, Megan Schaefer and me, Rachel Havard. Thank you for listening.